We'll be right back after this. I've actually been using today's sponsor for over three years and love them. And that company is Mint Mobile. After years of fine print contracts getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear me say Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you might think, what's the catch? But the cool part is that there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They don't have retail stores or salespeople, which cost a lot of money. Instead, they deliver premium phone plans directly to you. Say goodbye to your multi-hundred dollar phone bill per month and start using Mint Mobile where plans start as low as 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash fyshow. That's mintmobile.com slash fyshow. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash fyshow. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Now back to the show. But we've analyzed probably 200 deals since the beginning of the year that are on the multifamily short-term rental scale. And I would say some of those on the higher end were able to 10x the actual long-term rental gross income. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Dia Liu, who is a master at short-term rentals. But before we get into all that stuff, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What's going on, man? Yeah, so if you listened to the episode last week, you might remember that you know the previous weekend, we just went crazy getting furniture for the new house, spent all day moving stuff from storage units and trailers and renting things and borrowing trucks. And so we took things a little calmer this weekend. Friday night, we had a concert, a guy named Breland. So if you're into that kind of uh, old town road type music, uh, he might be the guy for you. He was very fun to go watch. And then we kind of dabbled in a couple little six street spots. Saturday, just watched football, got the car cleaned up for the first time probably in years. Sunday, we also just took it pretty easy, hit up a farmer's market. But yesterday, got to do a pretty cool thing which was I got to go into a guest lecture at the University of Texas talking to some college students just around my story, personal finance, a little bit of early retirement. So that was pretty cool. How about you, Cody? Super cool. Love that you're you know, spreading this knowledge to the youth. For me, we actually moved out of the lake house. It is no longer lake season. We had our first below 50 night up here in Massachusetts, and that is the signal to get out of there because it's not insulated. And once you start taking showers and you get out and it's below 50 in the house, that's not a good start to your day. So we officially moved back to our other house, which is literally four minutes away, which is super convenient. So the move only took a couple of hours. On Sunday, we actually made it to the first Patriots game of the season versus the Dolphins. I had never been to a game that had that good weather. You know, as a New Englander, usually I've been to games in October, November. I'm all bundled up. It was 82 degrees. I was wearing a t-shirt and shorts. It was awesome. Good vibes, good people. Got some food, tailgated, did all the football stuff. Good weather must have been the reason the Dolphins uh, pulled that win out, I guess. (laughs) Thanks for the dig, Justin. Unfortunately, lost by one point, but it was still all in all a good time. But Justin, that's enough about the personal updates from you and I. Let's get into the awesome guest we have on today, and that is Dia Liu. Her trademark is invest for lifestyle, travel for life. And what she's done is she's built out this system where she's just making these super profitable investments in short-term rentals. She talks about how she goes and finds these short-term rentals. How do you go and identify a market that's going to be profitable? It might have seasonality, but you might be able to capitalize on the off-peak seasons as well. She also talks about marketing those properties. How do you want to list the properties? What are some of the things you should be putting in the property description? How can you price these properties so you can make the best bang for your buck and get the best return in your dollar? She talks about how she's making 4 to 10x of what she'd be making with a long-term rental in some of these markets that she's investing in. And last but not least, she talks about the management of this stuff. She's traveling all over the country, all over the world. She was on vacation, actually, when we interviewed her. And she's just found this perfect balance. She's found the perfect recipe to develop and run this short-term rental business. So if you're interested in real estate at all, this episode definitely piqued my interest. And honestly, the week after we recorded this, which was a couple of weeks ago, I started looking at some short-term rentals in some of the areas that I mentioned in the episode. So if this at all interests you, definitely give this episode a listen because there is just so much good information jam-packed in here. 
Yeah, and if you want to check out the show notes and dig more into Dia's story, get some of those links, understand how you can invest in real estate without compromising on how you furnish it, where you live, anything like that, you can get all that information over at thefyshow.com slash Dia. That's thefyshow.com slash D-I-Y-A. Take it away, Dia. So my family, I actually came here in the US, to the U.S. when I was eight years old. And my mom actually came here first. She's a graduate student. And we survived for a little bit on just her graduate student stipend. And basically, she only earned about $1,000 a month. That was supposed to go towards rent as well as the living expenses and et cetera. So even before that, though, I actually came from China where at the time, a lot of food items were still being rationed and there are certain social things that were still happening in China. Let's just put it that way, that you couldn't just go into the grocery store and get whatever you want. And you couldn't just own a car just because you wanted a car. So a funny story I always tell people is that when we first got our used car, which was a Mazda, we actually took about 200 photos in front of this Mazda and we sent it to everyone back home because we finally had a car. And so to us, that meant that we had quote unquote made it in the U.S. And so really that was my humble beginnings. I went to school wearing the same pair of pants almost every single day because that was the only pair of pants that I had that matched the dress code, for example, middle school. And so long story short, I did have relatively humble childhood. And I think that what that really taught me is that I actually don't need a lot of money to be really happy. So what do I actually want that's independent of financial success. What do I really want to achieve in life? And I decided that I really wanted to travel and see the world. I also like to build beautiful things and design beautiful things and create beautiful experiences and travel experiences for other people. And I want to make money doing that. So that's really what I think shaped a lot of my humble experiences. And also when I later became an attorney And I did have a lot of the finer things in life and I did achieve the so-called societal definition of success. It did feel a little extravagant to me in terms of at one point, I actually felt like I was so tired of eating at fancy steakhouses because I had actually dined at fancy steakhouses five nights in a row. And I felt really privileged and quite spoiled feeling or thinking that way that, oh my gosh, I don't want to go to another steakhouse. But that was during recruitment season. So our law firms or rather international law firms all tend to spend a lot of money to go and wine and dine their potentials. And so that really, really drove home the point that maybe there's a little bit more beyond just what's considered traditionally successful. So you mentioned that you realized you really wanted to figure out a way to make money by by traveling and and designing those experiences for people. But then you also just mentioned that you were an attorney for a while. So what was there any kind of way that you started trying to step into that where you're like, you know what, the attorney thing is not really what I want to do. I want to dive back into this, figuring out a way to make money by traveling and experiences. Obviously, we're going to get into the the short term rental empire that you've built. But like, I'm kind of curious how you started getting your feet wet. So just to back up a little bit. So once again, I was, I did come from an immigrant family. So my family really focused on just this traditional notion of success, such as getting a W-2 job. When I was growing up, it wasn't really a question of what I was going to do. It was really a question of what kind of science degree that I was going to get a PhD in. That was very, it was very, very narrow from ever since I was a little kid. And so both my parents have graduate degrees. In fact, both of them actually have two graduate degrees in two different science majors. So growing up, the holy grail is really just getting a PhD at one of the Ivy League schools, and that was it. That was the definition of success. So I never really questioned it. I went to school at UT Austin, and I got 
uh, undergrad in chemical engineering and biochemistry. And then after that, I disappointed my parents by telling them that I was going to law school. And I chose law school because in my mind, it was a faster way to do what I wanted to do, which is to help people rather than spend at least five years at, in a research lab. And maybe or maybe not, I would get my PhD. I could just go to law school for three years and that I will be out doing what I want to do, which is just to make a difference in this world. And so I went to law school. I got a full ride and went to Brooklyn Law. I also really wanted to go to either the East Coast or the West Coast. So that really fit into my larger plan. And then I, I went to law school. I graduated at the top of my class and I got into a very prestigious law firm. And that is when my lifestyle changed drastically from what I was used to growing up to a much, much higher. Basically, I had a new norm now, which meant Uber rides home, which meant delivery food every single night or going out to a fancy place that's paid for by the firm. And so it was just very different. But I looked around and saw that a lot of my colleagues were actually working 12 plus hours every single day, even though they had a couple thousand dollar luxury condos in downtown or rather midtown Manhattan. They really weren't even using the amenities of their luxury condos because they were working so much. In fact, there's times where some of my colleagues actually slept under their desk because they thought that going home will waste another valuable hour of sleep. And they were only going to have about six to eight hours of free time before they were going back to the office. So they really didn't want to waste up one valuable hour. And I also saw that a lot of the people in my profession were not that happy. And that's not because my law firm, I actually really enjoy my law firm. It's really just very typical of my profession because a lot of attorneys end up having substance abuse problems. A lot of attorneys are very high on the list of depressed people, so to speak. And so I, I decided, you know what, there must be a better way. This can't be the long-term solution for what I wanted to do in life. And it also felt really weird that even though it was really cool that I was representing these Fortune 500 companies, at the end of the day, it felt like what I was doing didn't really make that much of a meaningful impact on society in general. And so that also really bothered me. And then finally, I've always been a really creative person. And during college, I actually had a pretty successful fashion website and it actually took off and I was featured on E! News, Team Vogue, Marie Claire, etc. And so I had to let all that part of me go when I started lo practicing law for obvious reasons. And I really felt like I couldn't be connected with my creative part of my brain anymore just because my job required me to be analytical on a daily basis. And so another part of me was really just craving just to get in touch with my creative part of myself as well. And so I really, I think that when I went to the dark side, I, so to speak, of short-term rentals, it was amazing because I got to use both my analytical part of my brain as well as my creative side. And when did this light bulb moment happen? Because, you know, you can have the idea that I hate this job as an attorney. I'm working 12 plus hour days. And then, you know, something must have happened for you to just stumble into short term rentals. Was it reading a blog or listening to a podcast or a YouTube video or a mentor or what kind of lit that fire? Well, I first actually found the financial independence community first. And I decided and I told everyone this and no one believed me, but I told everyone I was going to move back to Austin. I was going to get started with real estate investing. And people were like, there are no high paying jobs for patent litigators in Austin, Texas. My recruiter told me this real estate, you know, you have no real estate experience. You have no real estate contacts. What are you thinking? You have zero training relevant to real estate investing. Not that anyone does in the industry, but this is what a lot of naysayers start telling me. And so anyway, I did actually get a high paying job in Austin, Texas. It matched the same pay scale as New York City. 
So immediately that was actually a lot of extra funds that I could use for real estate investing. And I moved back and within a week after moving back, I was already out on the market house hunting to find my first real estate to house hack. And to answer your question about how do I discover short-term rentals, it was really out of a happy accident really because I didn't really like renting the rooms out of my house to long-term tenants because they start storing a lot of extra stuff. They started to have some sort of personality disputes and et cetera. And I just really wanted to where if I didn't really gel with someone or whatever, it was not a big deal because someone would come in, they will leave pretty soon, et cetera. So, and also I wanted to be able to have the entire design of my house be really cohesive and not necessarily have to adapt to other people's tastes and whatnot. And the best way to actually do that is to just actually rent out my house by the room to other people from Airbnb stays. And that can be monthly stays, that can be weekly stays. So they're actually typically white collar professionals, graduate students, traveling nurses, etc. And I actually have a little more control over who is coming in, who is coming out, most people, they tend to use the common areas a little bit less because they're only a temporary guest. And so I decided that I also like the aspect of being compensated for decorating my property creatively. So I don't have to feel bad about splurging on a piece of furniture or a piece of decor or whatnot because that will actually get me more revenue on the booking side in the end. So a lot of things just started stacking up. I realized my background and my passion for design, as well as my numerical analysis abilities from my engineering days, and also my legal background that helps me navigate the short-term mental regulations quite well, that all came together really well to help me succeed in short-term rentals. And what other people had in real estate investing in terms of real estate investing experience I actually can crush them still because I understand digital marketing. I understand design. I understand a lot of those things are not so obvious to your traditional real estate investor. And so that's why I decided, you know what? I'm going to start buying short-term rentals rather than start investing in just your traditional long-term rentals. And I'd love to start digging into some of the details of what you said there as far as compensation. So you realize you'd rather do this. It sounded like to begin with for more of a personality thing, but then you started realizing the compensation's better too. I'd love to hear, you know, how are you handling things like cleaning? Was that something you're doing yourself at the first? Um, like how many days a month would you need to rent via like an, a short-term rental to equate the same amount of money that you would have made if you rented it to one person for the whole month? Things like that. Right off the bat, my very first short-term rental investment was quite a few hours away from my primary residence. So I had to outs- learn how to outsource everything. And I make typically at least four times the gross rental revenue, at least compared to long-term rentals. And it really depends on where you're investing, obviously, as well as not just which town, but also which micro neighborhood, because not every single property is going to be the perfect short-term rental. It does have to have a certain vibe or certain look to it in order to really, really succeed on Airbnb. It can't just look like someone's house, even though that is how Airbnb started. So anyway, I decided to do short-term rentals because you can achieve financial independence a lot faster. Just one short-term rental, I was able to gross 41K in one year. And that was actually a purchase that only cost me 115 grand. So a lot, lot higher. I think the market rent at the time was about $1,000 to $1,100 a month. So you can see that it definitely increased the rental income by quite a bit. And then after that, I got smarter and smarter in where I need to invest. And so my rental income actually went a lot higher than that. And my return skyrocketed as well. So I actually put only 10% down on another property. And 
the cost for that property was two hundred and fifty five thousand dollars. And in the last twelve months, I grossed about a hundred grand on that property. And so I only put ten percent down on that property. So you can see that I make back my initial investment, even including furnishing costs, many times in just the first year of operations. Well, first of all, that is an absolutely insane rate of return. So congratulations, Dia. For the metrics, I want to kind of, I kind of want to build this thing from the start. So someone who wants to look at a potential short-term rental. What are some of the metrics you're looking for? Maybe it's population density. Maybe you're looking on Airbnb, seeing some comps. Maybe you're looking at home prices. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that goes into the equation. But I'd love to hear from a high level, you know, how someone else can start doing the math on these properties. So this is actually a really complicated question, but I'll try to simplify it as much as I can. And the the long story would actually be that it ends up being really complicated depending on which town you're actually looking at and which property, just because if it is, uh, so some properties that we have nicks in the past is because of logistical reasons, how far away it is from a major airport, for example, or how easy it is to get a cleaner out there because of the roads, how drivable are the roads during the winter, or how much revenue are you able to get? Is it seasonal tourism? Is it annual tourism? And how expensive is the real estate, obviously, relative to how much you can rent for on Airbnb and VRBO per night year-round, basically. So those are some of the initial things that we look at. I think the first two or three things that we look at are really the regulations and the political climate and the numbers. And I do have a really short course that I have on my site just because I get asked about this question all the time. It's a one hour course and it basically deep dives some of those concepts a little bit more. And when you're looking at, like, you know, you mentioned like the gross payouts, just trying to, and I understand that like every property is going to be different, but if there's some kind of general ballparks of like what percent of the money that's coming in, you should think is probably going to go towards cleaning or towards the other things, like how much of gross is generally net. And then, you know, you mentioned that the properties are probably about four times more profitable than long-term rental income. So would you say that it's fair to equate that to as long as you had an occupancy rate of around 25 to 30% that you should be okay. And anything above that is where you start making more money versus the long-term rental. I would say with short-term rentals, there's really not a hard and fast rule like that. So 4X is definitely where we are certainly interested in starting to invest. But we've analyzed probably 200 deals since the beginning of the year that are on the multifamily short-term rental scale. And I would say some of those on the higher end were able to 10X the actual long-term rental gross income versus what the short-term rental income would be. So, um, but we don't think that it's worth the extra trouble to do short-term rentals unless you're at least two or three X your long-term rental income. And so that's why there is a certain metrics that we look at in terms of at what point is it worth it to convert it to a short-term rental or actually to get into this as a short-term rental period. In terms of how much you net on your short-term rental gross income, it really varies based on how expensive your real estate is. And actually, I've seen this number being different depending on which short-term rental guru, so to speak, uh, is talking. But for me, me personally, I need to net at least 50% of what I am grossing. And that's normally where I'm calculating my assumptions when I'm doing my acquisitions. Now, I actually have a much more robust set of assumptions for expenses and mapping out exactly what that looks like when I'm actually underwriting or analyzing a deal. But normally, it ends up being at least 50% of gross. And when you're saying 50%, are you saying you're being able to pay the mortgage, pay all the cleaning fees, all that, and then you're still, it's still at 50% or it's just 50% of what you take in from say Airbnb goes towards the mortgage versus the other 50% going towards operating costs. We will be right back to the show after this quick word from our amazing sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever, and I can definitely attest to this. So much time spent searching for, interviewing the wrong candidates, the wrong people to hire for a job opening that could be spent 
on growing your business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it much easier to actually find candidates that are worth interviewing. So it's not just wasting your time. And the best part is that it's free. As someone who owns a couple small businesses, I can tell you how important it is to actually get that right team in place because once you start to outsource strategically, you can start to focus on the bigger picture stuff for your business. You can create a job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to find those perfect people to join your team. There's over 750 million people on the platform and there's candidates with every skill you can imagine and definitely one that can fit your wants and needs. Plus, with a company as big as LinkedIn, they do a really good job actually filtering through candidates and prioritizing who you'd like to interview, who you'd like to hire, and who's a good fit for your role. This is an opportunity to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash show. That's linkedin.com slash show to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So 50% is after all operating costs as well as paying the PITI. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, that's really good. Well, so that's not really that atypical of just people operating in the short-term rental space. Some of my properties I got under a hundred grand, I can actually get over five hundred dollars a night on bookings when I'm during peak season. And the reason for that is because people are not really their mentality when they're traveling is a lot different than when they're shopping for a long-term rental to rent. Because when you're renting out your first apartment or your second apartment, you're thinking, what is the cheapest rent that I can get, right? You're always negotiating downwards. You are trying to save because that's a staple in your budget. But when you're traveling, you're, or rather a lot of people's mindset shifts and they're thinking, you know what? I only have two or three weeks out of every single year where I can take off. And I get to take my family to a really nice vacation. I don't want anything to go wrong. I want the property to be really updated and really beautiful. And as soon as we walk in, it's going to feel like I'm on vacation. And so because of that, people are willing to pay for a lot of things that they normally don't want to pay for. So Things that normally work well for a long-term rental, like mid-century modern or everything, right? That's actually what a lot of people do when they do flips. That actually doesn't really work as well for a vacation rental because you don't want to walk into what feels like someone else's house. You actually want to walk into, let's say, something that feels like you're at the beach or you feel like you're in a mountain cabin. And so... That's one reason is because a lot of people's mindset shifts and they don't mind shelling out an extra $100 a month. I mean, not a month, a h- extra $100 a night to stay somewhere a little bit nicer that has vetted reviews that are five stars and from other guests. Because now they know that this place will actually be a good experience for their honeymoon, a good experience for taking their mothers out for Mother's Day or a good experience for people to celebrate a graduation or a birthday or whatever. And the second thing is that if you actually are able to now tap into the unique vacation rentals, such as tree houses and yurts and airstreams and et cetera, the things that you wouldn't not actually stay in day to day, but you want that special experience for let's say three or four nights, then you're actually able to get even more rental income just because people are willing to pay for staying at a yurt with mountain views or whatever, even if that's not ever anything that anyone wants to stay in long-term. So the vacation rental model, a lot of people, when they approach it with a traditional long-term rental mindset, it won't make sense to them. Why should I upgrade this countertop when laminate is perfectly fine? Why should I do this? It makes no sense that tree houses will make 10x more money than a regular house. It's the same location. That makes no sense to me. But in fact, it would because when you're booking stuff, you want, do you want to stay in a regular house that looks exactly like your house at home or do you want to stay in a tree house? I will pick the tree house. I can definitely say that uh, I'm guilty as charged on that. We stayed in a beautiful yurt in Vermont, like in feet of snow, and it was it was awesome. But definitely not somewhere I'd want to have to live where you get up in the middle of the night and get in firewood to stuff the, stuff the fireplace. But it was awesome for a night. So I, I totally hear where you're coming from. 
I have a, a little bit of a selfish question because it's a situation that we're considering where we just bought a house actually in Austin. Sounds like a town you're familiar with. And we're considering doing something where as someone who travels a lot, say we're gone for two weeks, setting the house up in a way where we can quickly set everything into like a closet, lock it and rent out our Airbnb while we're on a trip. What are your thoughts on someone trying to do something like that? Well, I actually ended up doing that first with my house. So I had already rented out the house by the rooms at that point, except for the room, which was the master bedroom that I was personally staying in. But I still want to travel. And at that time, I was really trying to save every single penny that I made. And that meant that if I stay, if I was traveling for a weekend and my room was actually not occupied to me, that was really wasteful. So what I ended up doing was that I actually put a pin pad lock on the master bedroom's closet because I'm not, most people, when they're coming in for just a weekend, they're not going to need a whole walk-in closet. And so I put a pin pad lock there. And the only person who knows the code, if, of course, is just me and my cleaner. And I locked all my valuables, such as my computer, monitor, and et cetera, in that walk-in closet. And then I just left everything else that I don't care as much for to the guests so that they can use whatever else I had out in the master bedroom is free to use by the guests. And I also had a clothing rack as well for the guests so that if they're coming in, they can just use that hanging clothing rack. And you know, when you're coming in for just a weekend, that's normally sufficient for your needs. Well, I'm happy to hear that you... Uh don't think that's a crazy idea because that's that's definitely what we're, we're not people who have a lot of stuff. And so we're just want to lock the garage and lock our walk in closets. And it's a three bedroom and then rent out the whole place like all at once, not room by room, probably but the whole place while we were going on a trip. I actually think so if in Austin, I typically just raise my house rates sky high for just the peak season, like ACL, South by, et cetera. I will actually get a couple reviews first. So have some friends and family stay with you and leave nice reviews first. And then I would actually end up charging quite a, an arm and a leg during peak season. Some people charge as much as $1,000 a night for just your standard single family during those peak seasons. And then when you actually get that booking, that's when you book your trip. Because a lot of these people are going to be corporate bookings. So they're going to be at least one month out, especially for these large events such as South by. So you have plenty of time to plan your actual trip after you get the bookings. I've actually done that quite a bit with just my room. I actually got a couple thousand dollars during South by for just renting out my room. And I went to New York City and visited my friends that I haven't seen in a long time because I live in New York City for five years. So it was actually really great. All right. So since Justin got to ask his selfish question, I want to ask a selfish question because it's something I've been looking into, but it just kind of overwhelms me and it's just not my forte. And you mentioned a lot about like peak season. You can get these rates in peak season and there's peak seasons all over the country for various different reasons. Too near me, I'm in central Massachusetts, going up in the mountains, just during ski season, the prices are astronomical for Airbnbs and short-term rentals. Cape Cod in the summer, prices are just absolutely insane to get a house down by the beach. You know, what are some of the pros and cons to doing the seasonal versus like an annual short-term rental? Because the things that were concerning me is like having a house that's sitting maybe empty for months at a time just because there's such low rental demand. The answer sounds very legalese and that I'm going to answer you and say it depends on your situation. So to clarify what I mean by that, if your property, you're getting something uh under a hundred grand and you're able to get over 500 some at least 300 a night during peak season the fact that it's sitting at a lower occupancy the rest of the year or at a much lower rate the rest of the year does not matter that much it also depends whether or not there are other smaller travel seasons so for a lot of the ski properties that i have they actually don't just have people up there during ski season. During the summer, such right now, there's a lot of people on the weekends for mountain bikes and hiking and whitewater rafting and just in general to escape the hot summers in the surrounding states. 
It's a beautiful 70 degrees during your day. It, there's plenty of hiking trails. Even if you're not a big hiker and you just want some mountain views and a change of scenery, it's a great time to get away during the summer. There's a lot of farmer's markets. There's a lot of live music concerts and et cetera. And there's a lot of just small festivals and events happening pretty much during the entire summer season. And now during the fall, there's actually some hunters coming in as well. So a lot of these towns, it really makes sense. If you're really worried about the off season, maybe just go visit it in the quote unquote off season and see how busy it truly is. You might be surprised that there's still a pretty healthy source of tourism. And you can also talk to the locals and say, hey, what are the seasons like? When, what months are, is a town completely dead? And you can talk to the bartenders. They always know every single event that happens in town. I love talking to them about, you know, what's, what there is to do around here throughout the entire year because bartenders always ask you, Hey, what are you doing tonight? Et cetera. As one of the first questions when you sit down at the bar. And in terms of beach towns, a lot of people end up going to my personal beach towns that I own in. They actually have a lot of winter birds that flock there because it is a little bit warmer during the winter seasons compared to the northern parts of the U.S. So even though it is not as packed as during the summer, there's still quite a few people staying there. Now, finally, and this is not some everyone's cup of tea, but I like to invest in a wide range of markets. I like to invest in beach markets. I like to invest in ski markets, and they naturally offset each other in terms of seasonality. And if I'm buying at the right price for both of those markets, I don't care that maybe the rental revenue is going to be lower for one of my properties during the off season, so to speak. There is still a lot of bookings coming in. It's just not back-to-back $500 a night bookings. And I can also put someone in as well that's more of a monthly renter because let's say they're newly moving to that town or whatever. So there's so many different ways that you can actually maximize your revenue in the off season. And maybe a question that you'll enjoy from that kind of legal perspective that I've always wondered about is liabilities. So if you have something like an at-home gym or a swimming pool or these different things that you could see someone getting hurt at, is that something you consider? Is there like best practices for circumventing, you know, liability in those situations? I personally don't have any properties that have a pool or a gym that's within my personal control. What I mean by that is that if the condo association has a gym or a pool, the guests are not really under my watch, so to speak. So it's from a liability perspective, that's not something I have to be as concerned about. Now, I do have short-term rental insurance and not just your regular landlord insurance for all my properties. And there's different ways to actually insure yourself. There's also per booking insurance that some of my short-term rental colleagues actually use. And really, it's just to find the business model that works for this property in specific and for you and all your short-term rentals in general. But we, long story short, yes, that's some definitely something that we think about quite a bit from a legal perspective. Going back to maximizing revenue for a sec, what are some easy wins for attracting short-term renters? Whether this is the listing pictures, whether this is a certain amenity that you need to have, whether this is the layout of the house. It really is whatever catches your eyeballs the most when you're skimming through a long list of potential rentals. So a lot of people end up just putting the outside of the house as their first picture, just because that's what they're used to. For example, if they're a realtor or if they're a long-term rental investor, And that's really, really wasting your first impression that your guests or or potential guests is having on your property. And so I would say your very first picture needs to be that Instagram or social media moment. And whether that is the most million dollar water views that you can find at your property, or maybe a picture of your patio at sunset with the string lights there because you can actually, the potential guests can actually imagine themselves spending a beautiful night there. Or it could be a swing chair 
with the garden view in the background or a fire pit and some string lights, you know, something that doesn't really make sense if you're once again familiar with the long-term rental mindset, but it makes a lot of sense in terms of what is that moment that you want to highlight for your guests. This is that moment that you can have while you're on vacation if you stay with me. And if that's an accent wall that just looks absolutely stunning, use that as your first photo. If that is a fireplace, use that. If that is the pool, if you have one, definitely use that. But for some of my, it really depends on which property we're talking about in terms of what is that first picture. For a lot of my ski properties, I do tend to feature either the mountain views that I have or the fireplace that I have. So just because those are some things that people end up looking for when they're skiing is either you want to relax on the balcony and be staring at the mountains or you want to be having conversations after a long day of skiing in front of the fire. So, and then in terms of Texan destinations, a lot of the water features or the patios or the barbecue grills end up being really popular. So those are some things that you probably want to highlight in your first few pictures. So it really depends on doing a lot of research on your target demographic and in terms of what you want to draft as your title in terms of your listing description. So we're actually doing a lot of short-term rental multifamily acquisitions this year. And one of the first things that we do is who is our target demographic and what do they actually want when they're actually traveling to a new destination? Do they care if it's dog friendly or not? Do they care if it has a flight of stairs or not? Meaning, are they super active people? Are they not super active people? Do they care how walkable it is to restaurants and bars? Do they care how big the kitchen is and how, how well stock it is? Those are all questions that are really, really dependent on who your target demographic is. If the person that you're trying to focus on is a super foodie and will be eating out five nights every single week that they're staying with you, having a giant kitchen may not really make that much of a difference. But if you're targeting families and who want to cook in and who want to have big meals around the table, having a tiny little kitchen and only a dining table that seats four is not going to attract those kind of people. So what is the star amenity in every single listing is really, really dependent once again Go back to your customer, and I think that's something that I drive home a lot is in short-term rentals, we are in the hospitality industry. We're no longer in just real estate investing realm anymore. And I think as far as the you know logistics that I think about is owning one of these properties, I always keep going back to the, the turnover and the cleaning part. Do you have any best practices for sourcing that, especially if it's not a situation where you can set up a guarantee with a cleaner that you're going to give them so many nights a month that they get to clean or a certain cadence? Well, a lot of the companies that we end up hiring, they do short-term rentals full-time and they have multiple short-term rentals under their portfolio. If you're just talking about a property such as your Austin property or some other property that you're only renting out part-time, I agree with you that is going to be a little bit harder to find a full-time cleaner who wants to put that on her plate or his plate, just because that won't be a guarantee source of income. Now, all, most of my short-term rentals are full-time short-term rentals. In fact, even though I bought them with the intention of, hey, it'll be so cool if someone else paid for my dream ski condo or dream beach house, I end up actually not staying there very much because it makes so much money. So long story short, these places, they I do have a regular cleaning team. It's not just one cleaner, which means that if they go on vacation or if they're sick or whatever, some other cleaner is going to be the person that's going to show up that day. And so we do end up having checklists that we have sent to the cleaning company normally to make sure that these items are always clean. And normally there's always a person that is also QCing the cleaner and it has to be a different person. Now that's the best practices. In terms of what you can realistically get in a smaller town, that may be different, but this is what we recommend for maximum potential of success. And did you find this company like through a real estate group? Did you find them just by Googling short-term rental cleaning companies near me? 
It really depends on which market. In the smaller markets, you do have to search a lot harder than in, let's say, Austin or some other place that has hundreds of cleaning companies competing for business. In most larger towns, you can actually go to Turnover and B&B, which is actually a specific site that is only for connecting owners with short-term rental cleaning companies or specific individuals who are cleaning short-term rentals. And because of the built-in system, it's just a lot better for most people to find their first cleaner and whatnot. And it's also allows you to pay your cleaner right on the platform. It allows you to link your vacation rental listings to it. Now, if you actually want to have purchases in a smaller town, they might actually not have any cleaners on Turner over B&B. And in that case, you might have to use Google Maps. You might have to use realtors. You might have to use your handyman or whoever is in a no to help you find a good cleaner. You might actually even have to start your own cleaning company. And some of my students from my mentorship program, they actually end up starting their own cleaning company because they could not find a cleaning company that was of the caliber that they're requiring. So they end up, you know, saying that there's a couple hundred vacation rentals. I think it will support its own standalone short-term rental cleaning company. I'm going to start one. One of the great things I want to mention about short-term rentals that is very, very different from other aspects of real estate investing is that it's not just focused on being tied to one specific location. It is very location independent, meaning that I can actually do a three-week tour of Utah, Arizona, and Colorado, and I can still wake up with a couple thousand dollars every single day in my inbox. And I don't have to knock on any tenant's door. I don't have to worry about marketing because it's already listed on these vacation rental websites. And I really don't have to do much because my cleaners know exactly when these guests check out. They send me pictures if there's any damages and that's really only time that really need to be involved. And I have management companies that also help me answer a lot of the questions. I have automated messages that go out that provide check-in instructions. And so I could actually pretty much just check in my phone a couple times throughout the day and that's adequate for me quote-unquote working on my short-term rentals. And so that's what I love about short-term rentals. I'm actually in Vail, Colorado right now because of that lifestyle that you are able to do because of investing in short-term rentals. If I was actually flipping properties, for example, I would actually have to check in my projects every single day and that would not allow the same level of location independence, even if I make the same amount of money as short-term rentals. Now, the second reason I really like short-term rentals is that a lot of people can get started by getting a secondary home financing mortgage and they're actually able to put as little as 10% down on their dream beach property or their dream ski condo or whatever. And once they actually purchase that, they can actually have other people pay for that dream beach house or dream ski condo. And that's the best part of short-term rentals is that you don't have to compromise the lifestyle along with the traditional notions of being frugal and financially independent. You can actually have your cake and eat it too. You can actually buy the nice furniture when you're actually buying your dream ski condo because guess what? It's going to help you rent out a couple hundred dollars more a night than if you put in a used couch that mismatches, you know, compared to the coffee table or whatever. You don't have to compromise on your lifestyle at all or uh, traveling around the world or anything like that when you're doing short-term rentals just because of the nature of the beast you are actually compensated more when you end up splurging on furniture that actually looks aesthetically pleasing. Now, obviously, I would not suggest putting a $20,000 piece of art in a vacation rental or anything like that, or using the best couch, the most expensive designer couch ever in the world, just because that is going to be sat on by a lot of strangers that you don't know. But In general, you're able to buy furniture that's nice and artwork that's nice and furnish your vacation rental and your dream house 
in a nice design and fashion versus if you're just trying to buy it and furnish it just for your own personal use. So go ahead and buy that dream beach house. Go ahead and buy that dream ski condo. Obviously run your numbers before you do that, but you're actually able to afford it and actually be paid for it. Well, I can honestly say I'm pretty reinvigorated. I was kind of discouraged before because of the it sitting for nine months, but I think I could probably make this work. So that's going to be my homework for the next month or so looking for looking in the locations I was mentioning to you, Dia. And for those people in the audience who are like me and are maybe really interested in short-term rentals and want to learn more, want to learn more about all the stuff you do in your mentorship, where are some of the best places they can connect? I think the best way is really to connect with me on Facebook. And right now I still have not hit my Facebook friend cap. So go ahead and shoot me a message first before adding me as a friend, just because otherwise I would not know who, where that source is coming from and how you know me. But definitely shoot me a friend request. You can also follow me on Instagram at DLUESQ as well. And then finally, you can find more information about some of the offerings on DLU.com. But the best way is really to just reach out to me on Facebook. I am under DLU and you can actually follow a lot of my real estate investing journeys and a lot of my food pictures. I post a lot of food pictures, just guys. But yeah, you can follow me and my travels and my food and my real estate investing journey on Facebook. And that's really where I'm the most active. So send me a friend request to say you found me through this particular podcast and you want more information, let's say, on the one-hour course that we have at DLU, which is that one-hour course on the three things that you must know when you get started in short-term rental investing. Well, Dia, like Cody said, I'm, I think I'm also reinvigorated. I'm pumped about this property. We're getting in Austin, getting to try my hand at the first uh, short-term rental of my experience. And so just thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been awesome. Thank you, guys. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Buy Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thebuyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.